on uh, the Ten Commandments of Progressive Christianity. Um, again, I don't have a handout for you guys, and so I mentioned that last week, that uh, for this study, I really don't have a handout per se, so I hope that maybe you have somewhere to take notes on. Um, if you need a clipboard, um, we just had somebody uh, donate, like, a box of clipboards. So uh, if you need a clipboard, there are clipboards up here. Uh, they are literally brand new, wrapping and all. So you get the fun job of taking the wrapping off and being like maybe that older person in church that tries to unwrap a mint in the back. Just all that kind of crunching and the wrapping and everything. So if you do it together, it'll be cool. But if you do it like in 10 minutes, it'll be a little weird, okay? So, uh, so if you want one or need one, you can come up and get one. That's cool. Help yourself. Um. Those of you that are not moving to get clipboards, uh, I'm going to give you a Bible reference. You can turn there, and then we'll get there in just a few minutes. Uh, so you can go to 1 John chapter 4. 1 John chapter 4 is where we're going to start in just a little bit. And so again, if you missed last week's, um, hopefully that made it on the website. I never actually checked to make sure. Yeah, that's, that's good. I like Kelsey was as loud as possible. Latest message, yep. So um, I know this last Sunday night, um, and I didn't confirm with TJ, he wasn't here last week. So I'm not sure if it made it or not, but it should be showing up on the latest messages. If it's not, if you go into all messages, it should definitely be there. So I'll get with him and see what's going on there. Maybe there's just some kind of a confusion there. Yeah, it should be, it'll just say like, um, if you go to all messages, it should say Sunday p.m., Sunday a.m., um, there won't be obviously a video for Sunday night, just the audio, but, um, but we'll confirm with TJ, make sure. But if you missed last week's, um, has everybody opened their clipboard, by the way, if you have not opened your clipboard, go ahead and take a second to do that. Let's just go ahead and get that out of the way right now. I know. Yeah. Collect the wrapping paper or the Josiah's being extra. Uh, pastor's kid. All right. All right. No, no, just have a seat. Thank you. All right. We, I, I just figured I, I needed to remove that distraction from myself than more than anyone else. So last week we began talking about uh, this topic of progressive Christianity and what that looks like. And what did we say was another title for this type of, it's not just progressive Christianity, we said it's also been known as this kind of Christianity. Heresy. It will be considered heresy in some degree, yes. Liberal theology or liberal Christianity, okay? Liberal Christianity or liberal theology. And we said this is really not a new thing. Uh, the titles change. But the actual content or the idea behind this type of thinking has been around, obviously, in, in for many generations, but also going all the way back to, as we're going to find out, uh, even in the New Testament, um, and even with basic views of God, understanding of God, uh, we see even misconceptions, uh, false teaching in the Old Testament. So this is not a you know, church age now thing. This is not a new thing that we're dealing with in our church culture that no other church culture has dealt with. Uh, this is something that goes all the way back to the early church. This goes back, predates before that, which is views of God in the Old Testament. Uh, really, it's all a result of Genesis 3, right? From the fall, we know, because we're created in the image of God, remember, the image of God that we were marked with, right, that we were created in, yes, has been, has been tainted by sin, but we don't lose the image of God. 
we still have intrinsic value and worth as a created being, okay? So we know instinctively we're supposed to worship something. Like we know that, right? Romans 1 talks about this. We know there is a God. We know we should worship this God. Uh, we know, uh, and we've seen this recently with uh, either tragedies or this uh, football player that uh, what a praise that he is uh, doing so much better. Uh, DeMar Hamlin, who had a cardiac arrest on the field here um, two Mondays ago. Um, what a praise. Uh, just so many people praying for him. Um, all that went into that. And I'm always amazed that when you see things like this happen, where there's a tragedy or this individual was obviously in just a dire need of prayer, uh, to see so many people praying. And, and I don't know that everyone who was praying was a believer. I'm not going to, you know, make a statement like that. But my point is, people, human beings, instinct individual. As you're flipping through the channels, you would see on every sports channel, let's be praying from the next day. We should be praying from Dan Orlovsky, who uh, we actually shared his kind of a, a little video of his last football Sunday. Uh, he's in, uh, does, you know, uh, NFL live on ESPN and stuff. And, and he right on TV, just that I feel led to pray for this man and his family uh, and just prayed for them. And I, as a believer, that's an amazing thing to see. And I'm always blown away by just the instinctive nature of humanity to say, we got to pray. It always blows me away. Why? Because we were made in the image of God. And God made us with the, the knowledge that when things go wrong in this world, we need to look to something beyond ourselves. Now, the problem is in sin, we look to all kinds of things, right? We worship the creature, not the creator. We worship the stuff, not the one who gave us everything that we see and everything that we have in the world today. So again, we, we have these instinctual drives to look to something, but we, we worship the wrong things. We put our minds on the wrong things. And so again, ever since the fall, humanity has been pushed to worship something. But because of sin, because of that brokenness, right, we end up worshiping self. We worship the stuff, right? We worship the creature, not the creator, and so when we think about this idea of false teaching or even taking scripture and twisting it or misusing it, it goes all the way back to Genesis 3. It's not a new problem. That's kind of what we're wanting us to understand. Again, progressive Christianity is merely the title given to those within Christianity or what's called Christianity that mix biblical truth with liberal interpretation. In fact, this is not a new thing, but generations old. So Take Christian principles, right? You're in a church, you grow up in a church, you, you know the Bible, you take some of those principles and you mix it with a liberal interpretation. Now remember, liberal, we're not talking about politics, okay? We're talking about the idea of a liberal way of doing this. That means I become the authority of what this means. So I now read a verse and go, well, to me it means this. So I interpret it with me in mind or with a humanistic thinking, right? The, the days of creation can't be six literal days because that doesn't make sense culturally with science. So I have to change that to match and to mix and to mingle in what the world or what the culture says this means. So it's just basically changing scripture, the interpretation of scripture with a liberal or kind of a human first, man first mentality. The idea is what makes sense to me. Now, let me be very careful here. This doesn't mean that we don't think through the text. That we don't try to understand the text. I'm not saying everything, we just a blind leap. We just keep leaping off in this blind faith and we can't know anything. I do believe we need to study the text. But there's many things in scripture that I know what it says and I know what it means or I've learned what it means, but I may not understand it. Does that make sense? I believe Lazarus rose from the dead. I don't know how in exact detail Jesus did that. 
right? I don't know the medical things that Jesus was doing and all the things that God did to, you know, rewire this and restart his heart and all those things. I don't know how he did all that. I don't have to know all that or explain all that. I just put faith in the fact that the word of God says that it happened. Therefore, I believe that's what happened. So we do use a level of understanding personally. Um, We take common sense into understanding a text. We take history. We take culture, right? We take context. All of that comes into play, but I don't become the final authority on what a verse means. This is why sometimes, and we've said this so many times with all of our different things on looking at a text and trying to break apart a text. We were doing that for a while. Um, Sometimes Bible studies, it's like small group Bible studies can be really beneficial, but can also be really dangerous. If the end of it is, what do you think it means? And what do you think it means? And what do you think it means? Okay, great. And we move on. Someone has to say, okay, that's great. Now here's what it means. We can't all say, well, I think it means this and I think it means that. Because if those two things contradict, that's just confusion. So we have to come to a point of saying, what does it actually mean? And so again, this type of interpretation is very much based on felt needs, emotion, culture. Um, You might think it says one thing. I think it says another. But you know what? We're both right. Right? Both our truths are true. Uh, Because again, truth becomes very fluid right? Very subjective. Uh, There's no more absolute truth. There's no more definitive. It's this or it's this. It can be all of it. Um, And you guys heard last week from some of the teaching of Richard Rohr that um, his drive and his teaching is to get people to be more inclusive, right? He actually said, the more you can mix in and bring in, the more teaching, the more thinking, the more ideas from yeah, Christianity and Judaism and Hinduism and Buddhism and native religions and all of this. The more you can bring in, the more you'll, this is his word, you'll transcend, right? You'll keep, you'll keep moving up closer and closer to that divinity or to that idea of a heavenly understanding. Again, Jesus was not all-inclusive in the sense that he told the woman at the well, you worship, you know not what. But where did salvation come from? It comes from the Jews. He was being very definitive there. And so again, anyone can, can receive Christ. If they repent of their sins, turn and trust in Christ. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord. It's actually very inclusive, right? It's the only world religion that doesn't make you jump through all these hoops to get saved. Right? I mean, could you imagine being born in India in a caste system? And you've got to keep working your way up these systems over and over again through, through uh, karma and reincarnation. And hopefully you'll come back as something better, higher up. And sooner or later to reach nirvana. I mean, that's, that's a lot of works. That's a lot of efforts. With Jesus, it's simple. I died for your sins. Repent of your sins. Trust in me. Receive me as your Savior, and you can be saved. Man, woman, race doesn't matter. Uh, financial status doesn't matter. Jobs doesn't matter. Where you were born doesn't matter. Language doesn't matter. Right? We're all able to be saved. And so, again, so many people think, well, Christianity is too exclusive. You know, just, it just pushes too many people out. But the reality is truth is always going to divide. Truth is always going to make us choose A or B. So again, when we talk about progressive Christianity, it's just that idea. Okay, very liberal, personal interpretation. Now, we talked about that this book that I will be referring to uh, was a critique of these Ten Commandments. Which these Ten Commandments, these Ten Statements, were part of a devotional series by Richard Rohr, who basically used them as a confessional statement. These are kind of ten keys of progressive Christianity. I gave you the whole list last week, so we're just going to dive into number one. All right, so the first commandment 
And this, again, is from a work by Richard Rohr, but was also kind of encouraged by another man named Philip Gully. Okay, so those are two individuals kind of pushing this. So number one, the first commandment we gave you. Jesus is a model of living more than an object of worship. So the first commandment, Jesus is a model of living more than an object of worship. So one more time. Jesus is a model of living more than an object of worship. Now, I actually remember last week when I read all these and I read that first one, there was actually like a gasp in the room, like an actual collective sigh. Like, what? what? Jesus is a model of living more than an object of worship or for worship. So what is this really saying, this statement? What is this really speaking to? Did everyone get that? Good to go? Okay. So some would argue, and as I was kind of studying through some of this and reading some different things, some would argue that the word more in that commandment makes clear that progressive Christianity is not denying Jesus' divinity, merely emphasizing the example of Jesus' moral life of more importance. So this is where we understand. This is why when you hear statements, when you see things or read articles, you have to be really, really discerning of, of what you're reading. So look at that statement again. Jesus is a model of living more than an object of worship. And some progressive Christians would say, well, I'm not denying Jesus was divine. I'm not saying he wasn't God. What I'm emphasizing is the way in which Jesus lived is of more importance for us today in this world than merely seeing him as an object of worship. Now, again, you can hear that there's a half truth there. Did Jesus set forth a moral example of living while on this earth? Should we as followers of Christ, key word being followers, demonstrate our lives or live our lives as following that moral example? Strive to live as Jesus lived, loving our neighbors as ourselves, loving those in need, uh, showing mercy to those that need mercy, grace, right? Speaking truth in love. Of course we should. But the problem is that while that sounds good, and people will say, well, I'm not denying his divinity. The truth is, if you look at the authors and the speakers and the teachers in this movement, they actually are denying that very thing. And this is, again, we're going to talk about why this is so common. So again, some would say, well, I'm not denying his divinity. I'm merely saying the way he lived is more important than worshiping him. This is exactly what Philip Gully, this is the author of the book I referred to last week, the Ch If the Church Were Christian, Rediscovering the Values of Jesus. Um, and again, what, why, do, why would an author make a title of a book that? Because they want you to think what they're teaching you is really what it's been all along. We just missed it. Rediscovering the values of Jesus. This is really what Jesus would believe. This is really what Jesus would teach. We've just lost it in the church. And man, I'm so glad that this guy, Philip Gully, rediscovered these truths for us. So we could now finally, the Bible's not sufficient for showing us these things. We need him to write a book so that now we're okay. But this author, Philip Gully, actually does deny the divinity of Christ. This individual is an example. Again, he is one among many. Okay, so I'm not saying he's the end-all, be-all of progressive Christianity, but a good example. Um, Gully rejects the virgin birth, rejects the sinless life of Jesus, rejects the miracles of Jesus as mere myths 
designed to elevate Jesus to a, quote, divine status. And in his own words, quote, the church's worship of Jesus is something he himself would not have favored. This is what's progressive Christianity. This man teaches the name of the book, again, just in case you can get it, the values of Jesus. And he's saying if Jesus showed up in church today, and we were singing songs of praise to, to the Lord. We prayed in Jesus' name. We emphasized the divinity of Christ. This man is saying Jesus would actually be displeased by that. Not happy with that. Because, oh, go ahead. So this is the thing with, with progressive Christianity. They would say, no, I don't deny scripture. Right. But this is what I was going to say. This is where progressive Christianity... Richard Rohr, we saw this last week with the teaching too. The problem is they are denying the sufficiency of Scripture, but they would tell you, and again, what, I'm, what I want you to understand is kind of their view versus biblical view. They would tell you, no, 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 we're very much emphasizing Scripture, but what they're doing is they're just picking and choosing the passages that align with their view, and then any verses that seem to contradict their view, he actually says it. That basically those were things added in by the apostles to elevate Jesus to divine status and that Jesus himself would not have wanted us doing that. So they will, they will tell us, no, no, I very much agree with scripture. By the way, there's lots of false teachers who quote scripture. Lots of cults that quote scripture, right? The book of, or the, the Quran talks about the scriptures. The Quran talks about Jesus. And so again, it's picking and choosing, okay? And so this man would say, no, 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 I believe in Jesus. But really, if you take away the virgin birth, the sinless life, the miracles, what do you have left? A good, good, cultural good, moral man who did good things and who we can then model our lives after. And now what you've done is you've taken Christ, Jesus the Christ, you've lowered him down to just a man. And now we're just going to follow the example. We're going to live our lives. Here's the other thing too. If you take away all of that stuff, well, Jesus and Buddha and this guy, well, they're all pretty much the same. So again, this is the point of progressive Christianity, to deny the divinity of Christ by denying those things. Now, the miracles of Christ, many people have denied the miracles of Jesus. I mean, there's countless examples of individuals in even our own history as a nation. Um, Thomas Jefferson was one that he went through and he cut out all the miracles of Christ. And he said he could not believe those things were really true, that those really happened, but yet claimed to believe in God and in Jesus and all those things, but not in the miracles of Christ. And again, this is the foundation. And we went through this on Wednesday night. Some of you guys were in our Wednesday night study. When we went through some of the false teachings that were in the early church, some of the different teachings that kind of spread through the early church. Every single one, if you boil it down, Every single one attacks either that Jesus was God or that Jesus was man. They either accept one and deny the other or vice versa. Some would say, no, Jesus was very much man, but no divinity. Or some would say, no, he was all divinity and therefore he could not be contained in the flesh. Every false teaching in the early church, every misuse of scripture in the early church to try to lead people astray, came down to what we view as Christ and how we view Jesus. So let's go to 1 John chapter 4. Because again, I'm going to show you what Scripture speaks to in this regard. And, and what do we think of and how do we handle someone that says what Gully has says. So 1 John chapter 4, 
And uh, we're going to read the first three verses. So 1 John chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. So if I can get a volunteer that would like to read that for us, that would be great. Who'd like to do that for us? Going once? Avi. All right. So verses 1 through 3, please. Okay, so we've talked about this before with 1 John 4. So many people talk about the Antichrist. And where do our minds instantly go when we think Antichrist? Revelation, future, right? This individual that's going to come and going to rise up against, you know, the church and all these things. But John is reminding us that, yes, there may be, and I believe there will be, a individual known as the Antichrist. But what's John saying? There's actually a spirit of Antichrist. Now, that, that means that there are those in the world already, first John in the world already, okay? So late first century, that are already in the world, and there more are coming. And what does he connect the, the spirit of Antichrist to? These false teachers, these false prophets, okay? And so when we read this man who denies the sinless nature of Christ, or the sinlessness of Christ, the virgin birth, the miracles of Christ, the very divinity of Christ— but then says, no, but I believe Jesus, so I'm not a false teacher. I'm not, this isn't the spirit of Antichrist. I believe that Jesus really came. But we have to ask ourselves, well, which Jesus does he believe came? Which Jesus actually appeared and began teaching all through the Gospels? Again, someone may say, well, I'm not denying the person of Christ, the person of Jesus. I believe he existed. I merely refuse to believe that Jesus was divine. Well, John, the author of 1 John, addresses what he means when he says Jesus Christ has come in the flesh. Let's go to John chapter 1. These are all very familiar passages, but John chapter 1, because we have to let Scripture interpret Scripture. So in 1 John 4, he says, anyone who denies that Jesus has come in the flesh. Well, okay, I believe he was born. I believe he lived. But which, which Jesus? Who is this Jesus that John is saying came. Well, John chapter 1, verse 1. Um, if I can get actually somebody that read verse 1 and verse 14. So another volunteer to read John 1, 1 and John 1, 14. Sandra, awesome. Can you read verse 17 as well, please? Sorry. Okay. So, who do we believe John, when he writes 1 John 4, and he says Jesus came in the flesh, who is that Jesus? According to John 1, it is the Word of God that was in the beginning that took on flesh and we beheld his glory. The glor glory as the only begotten of the Father. And then in verse 17, he tells us, For the law was given by Moses, but grace and truth came by 
Jesus Christ. So who's the word in 1.1 and 1.14? Jesus Christ. That's basic Bible interpret. That's basic Bible study. Okay. However, I'll refer back to another individual, Richard Rohr, who we talked about last week and continue to talk about through this study. In his teaching, he said that the word, capital W, is mentioned in chapter 1 as the Christ. Okay, so he's acknowledging word, chapter 1, 1, and the Christ, same. He's, he's agreeing with us. So right there we did, oh, he, he believes what I believe. However, he goes on to say, but Jesus isn't mentioned until verse 17. So in his words, we must understand that they are two different things that merely overlapped. So because John 1, 1 says the word, John 1, 14 says the word, then verse 17 says Jesus, the Christ, or Jesus Christ. He says the Christ has always been, Jesus was born, and the Christ and Jesus, they merely overlapped. But to confine Christ to the man of Jesus, now we've committed an error because we're confining the Christ. Do you see how quickly they can use the same terminology? Use, they'll go to the same verse. Oh, I believe the word is Christ. And you go, okay, we're good. But when you start to dive beyond the surface, you realize this is false teaching. This is the spirit of Antichrist. It's denying the clear context of Scripture. You cannot read John 1, 1 through 17 and come up with any conclusion other than there is the word that was in the beginning. That word was with the Father before creation. That word is the only begotten of the Father. So now we're into the Trinity. And that individual, that word, that one that was with the Father is Jesus Christ because he brought us grace and truth. This basic understanding. Now, I, I want to add this in as well. Before we just think, well, maybe this Richard Rohr guy is just kind of a fringe crazy man. He's just nuts. He's not speaking for the majority of this movement. If you think he's kind of fringe, kind of on the outside, he actually was quoted, and I'm, I'm not saying this is, this is a good thing, but it's showing you his reach, his, his influence, okay? Now, I don't like Stephen Furtick necessarily, but I'm just pointing out to you, I think it was two years ago, two and a half years ago, um, Stephen Furtick quoted Richard Rohr in one of his books in a sermon in a positive way, and Richard Rohr's Facebook page for the center that he founded has right around 186,000 followers. So when I quote this individual, I'm not just quoting some random fringe way out there, you know, extreme example. This individual has a lot of influence. And remember, he was influenced by Gully, who's all been influenced by liberal Christianity. So again, when people say, that Jesus is a model of living more than an object of worship, worship, they are not merely saying, oh, I'm just emphasizing how Jesus lived. They are, in fact, denying the, the divinity and the rights that Christ has, Jesus the Christ has, in worship. Rohr is demonstrating extremely poor hermeneutics. Context makes it clear that Jesus is the man, in fact, the God-man, the Christ, by the way, Richard Rohr said this last week when he was defining Christ. He said it means anointed. That Christ and Messiah, and he broke it all down. It means something that's anointed. This is, again, this is a half-truth. The word Christ doesn't mean a anointed something. The word Christ means the anointed one. 
It's not like if I anointed a cup and Jesus is anointed, they're equal. Jesus the Christ is Jesus the anointed, the Messiah, the anointed one, the prophet, priest, and king, all in one, as Hebrew says. So again, you have to listen beyond someone's supposed definition of these things. What does it actually mean? Again, he is the anointed one prophesied by Isaiah. Liberal Christianity is not merely emphasizing example over divinity. They are denying his divinity. The Princeton professor that I referenced last week, who I quoted last week, said it well. Liberalism regards him as an example and a guide. Christianity as a savior. Liberalism makes him an example for faith. Christianity, the object of faith. Those are not two slightly different views of Christ. Liberalism regards him as an example and a guide. He's just my guide. I'm just following his example. That's not Christianity. Christianity says Jesus Christ is a and the Savior. Liberalism says he is an example for faith. Christianity, the object of faith. So, does Christianity work if Jesus is just a moral example to follow? I didn't get it out there. Thank you, Avi. But here's why. Well, and that's right. 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 Well, and that's where even in Scripture, what? Right. And that's the thing. The, Right. Yep. And that's where we have to understand what we have to know as Christians. What does it even mean to be a Christian? What does that even look like? And so the answer, as was already said, is no. But I want to give you some reasons why Christianity does not work. First of all, and these are just some key things here. What's that? Oh, no, you're fine. No, I appreciate the passion. I love it. It's awesome. Um, I feel bad for the person who walks up and says, Jesus is a moral example. I'm just going to be like, bet, let's go. We're about to throw down. Okay. So let me give you some, some things. And again, this is from that, that book that I was referencing. Um, and, and just, I love the way he lays this out. So uh, the first reason uh, that Christianity does not work if Jesus is merely a moral example. Uh, number one in this idea here, Jesus claimed to be more than a moral example. Jesus himself claimed to be more than a moral example. Jesus never laid out, follow my example, follow the way I live. So, follow me so you can have, remember what Rohr said, integrity in this life. Remember he said that group that, that Ignatius was following or going along and found, and, and they were followers of Jesus, not because they were trying to get to heaven, but because they had found personal dignity. Now, I will suggest again, a Christian, a follower of Christ, man, we know our identity. And there's dignity in that. And by the way, all humanity has intrinsic dignity, right? We're all made in the image of God. So every life matters. Everyone has intrinsic value and worth. No other worldview, no other religion teaches that. There's no such thing as intrinsic value and worth in religions that tell you you have to work and work and work and work and work. 
But in Christianity, we tell people, because the Bible makes it clear, every human being has value, has worth, because they were created in the image of God. So again, Jesus himself made it clear that he was more than a moral example. Number two, in this idea of why this doesn't work, Jesus' own followers worshipped him as Lord, and Jesus never rejected their worship. Jesus' own followers worshipped him as Lord, and he never rejected their worship. Jesus never said, don't worship me. That's not okay. Don't do that. And in fact, the only thing Jesus would say at times was what? He would do a work, and he'd say, now listen, don't tell anybody about this. They'd be glorifying God and praising God, and he's allowing all of that, but he says, but could you guys just keep it kind of quiet for a little while? Now, why does he do that? Because the timing wasn't right. He was working his plan. Now, what did those people do, though? Went right out and told everybody they could find, right? Because we're really ultimately disobedient rebels. But, but when this happened, Jesus allowed the worship. He accepted it. So I'm going to give you some examples. Now, I know some of you are taking notes, so I'll try to go slow. If you miss one, uh, just come up after, grab the notes, or, or maybe ask me to repeat it if you want to raise your hand. So here's some examples of Jesus not rejecting the worship. Now, the first one here might sound kind of odd, but God the Father could have rejected this worship and kept this from happening, but he doesn't. So, first example, at Jesus's, not at his birth, but as he was uh, soon after he was born, the wise men worshiped Jesus, Matthew 2 and verse 11. No rejection of that. It's encouraged. It's written in a positive way. Uh, so, the wise men, Matthew two eleven. The disciples on the boat, Matthew 14, 33. Again, no rejection of this worship. The disciples on the boat, Matthew 14, 33. Pretty clear one here. Peter's confession of faith, Matthew 16, 16. Pretty cool story. Jesus says, who do men say that I am? Oh, you're Elijah. Oh, you're John the Baptist reincarnated. You know, oh, you're this. He, it almost is like he's just like, okay, 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 okay. Who do you say that I am? And I love this about Christ. He doesn't want the popular opinion. He doesn't want the survey. He doesn't want, he wants to know, hey, you guys that have walked with me and lived with me and watched me and heard me, who do you say that I am? And Peter, we give him all the flack, right? We give Peter such a hard time. By the way, he's the only one. But what does Peter say? You are the Christ, the son of the living God. That's a, that's a statement of worship. He doesn't say you're a Christ. You're like me and that we're both Christ. No, he makes a definitive statement of worship. And what does Jesus say? You have spoken rightly. And in fact, you didn't even come up with that, Peter. My father gave that to you by the work of the Spirit. So Jesus doesn't reject that. The disciples, after his resurrection, Matthew 28, 9. So the disciples, after the resurrection, Matthew 28, 9. Another reference would be Luke 2452. So the disciples after his resurrection, Matthew 28, 9, Luke 2452. The man born blind, John 9:38. The man born blind, John 9:38. Moving out of the Gospels into the rest of the New Testament. Philippians 2.10 tells us that every knee will bow in worship of Christ. Every knee will bow, Philippians 2.10. The angels worship Jesus, Hebrews 
This also makes it clear that Jesus is not a what? An angel in the sense of an angelic being. This is different than Exodus, the angel of the Lord. That angel there is referring to messenger. So we believe there are examples of the pre-incarnate Christ in the Old Testament. He is not a angel in the sense of an angelic being. He is merely a messenger in those moments. But the angels, as far as the beings, worship Jesus. And then lastly, just kind of a thought here. Almost the entire book of Revelation is about worshiping Jesus. I mean, not just a chapter here or a verse there. We don't think about Revelation this way, but I've heard it said before, too, that Revelation is one of the most Christ-honoring, Christ-worshiping books in the New Testament. So again, just some examples. That's not an exhaustive list, by the way. That's just some examples of Jesus receiving the worship or the church apostles and the writers of Scripture encouraging the worship of Jesus. So, Jesus' moral example also only stands out if he is Lord. So we've got Jesus' claim to be more than a moral example. Jesus' followers worshipped him as Lord, and he never rejected them or rejected that worship. And then thirdly, Jesus' moral example only stands out if he is Lord. Now, Avi made a point that I think is very valid. If Jesus is not the Son of God, if Jesus was merely just a moral teacher, what makes Jesus so different from any other teacher throughout history? If he is just a normal man, which makes his moral code, which stood out, by the way, even in his own culture, what makes the Sermon on the Mount so powerful? Because it was so radically different than anything they were hearing. I mean, the things in Matthew 5 alone would cause us to go, how can we possibly live this way? I mean, just the Beatitudes alone, that flies in the face of even cultural Judaism. So again, if he was just a normal man, then why would his moral code be elevated above any other teacher? What makes him better than anyone else? Also, if they say he was a prophet and therefore his code stands apart, How do they know he was a prophet? How do we know anything, really, apart from random small things outside of Scripture and history? How do we know, really, anything about the life, ministry, works of Jesus Christ? This book, right? So if you believe he's a prophet, which you have to go to Scripture to have evidence of his prophecy— And the Bible becomes your source of that information, which progressives or liberals do not believe is inspired. Then how are you coming to a conclusion that he is a prophet? Now, again, why would you follow his moral code unless you go to the scriptures? But if you go to the scriptures, how are you picking and choosing which one or which verse you take and which verse you leave? If these individuals submit that it is, in fact, inspired so that then they can use that to back their view that he was merely a prophet. Why believe the teachings of Christ morally, but deny the clear scripture that he is divine? And by the way, just a side note, the Jews didn't want to kill Jesus because he was a moral teacher. The Jews weren't like, man, this guy is so moral and upright, and he's always telling people to do good things. We should stone him. It's not how that went, right? They wanted to crucify him not because he taught about being moral. They wanted to crucify him because he claimed to be God, the Son of God, When he invoked the name, I am. Lastly, the contradiction of appealing to Jesus as a moral teacher while not submitting to his teaching 
on marriage or salvation. So let's say they say he's a moral teacher. He's a good prophet. We'll even take some of the scripture. Okay, you deny his divinity, you want his moral teaching, but then the things he taught morally about marriage and how to get to heaven, you deny that. So now not only are you picking and choosing which verses make him divine or not divine, you're picking and choosing even what moral teachings you want because the culture says what is or isn't moral. It's just a very confusing, contradictory way to try to understand what Scripture says. And what's the problem? It takes away the wholeness of Scripture, the fullness of Scripture. When in fact, if you just read the Word as it is, and I've always heard people say this, if you just read this book cover to cover, okay, no church influence, no background in religion, no cousins or aunts or grandmas that took you to church, you just read this book. There's some very clear things that even if you deny them, you have to admit this is what it's teaching. It's teaching very clearly that Humanity fell into sin, that God brought consequence for that sin, that this Jesus showed up to be the Messiah, the Savior of those individuals who would call out and repent of their sins, and that anyone who does that can go to heaven when they die. It, I mean, it's pretty clear-cut. It's not complicated. And so what they have to do then is they have to say, no, we're going to deny this and deny that because we have a preconceived idea of what we want to come out at the end of this. The other thing that's interesting is if you deny that Jesus is the Son of God, you deny the divinity of Christ, but you want to make him a moral teacher, what kind of moral teacher lies outright about being God? You're either God or insane or a liar. If you're insane, I wouldn't follow that moral teacher. If you're a liar, is that moral? Well, then you can teach me all you want about these other things, but I don't really care because you're a liar at your core. It just doesn't make any sense. And again, one more point we need to make about this that, again, ties us all into Christianity and this type of thinking. Christianity is not about moralism. What does that mean? Christianity is not about merely living moral lives. It's more than that. We're going to talk about this in weeks ahead, that liberal thinking, progressive Christianity, loves moralism. It's all about behavior. The biggest issue with this first commandment, and I had to put some notes, apart from denying Christ's divinity, is that it misses the point of Christianity entirely. Biblically and historically, Christianity has never been a religion of deeds, but what would you use, what word would you use to describe Christianity? It's not deeds and what we do. What is it? One word. What, what, how would you summarize all of Christianity? Grace. Grace. Historically, go back and study the early church fathers. What was the emphasis? It wasn't about what we did. It was about the grace of God to send his son to die for us. Liberal Christianity is more about behavior, not about theology or doctrine. However, Christianity is not about what we do, but about what Christ has done for us. So go back to 1 John chapter 4. I know we got out of there, but 1 John chapter 4 and verse 10. Super familiar verse, but a great summary verse of what it means to really believe what Christianity looks like. So one more volunteer, 1 John 4.10. Who'd like to read that for us? Going once. Going twice. Kelsey, awesome. Whoop, whoop, whoop. 1 John 4.10. 
I mean, I, that was an extra word. I loved it. I loved it. Propitiation for our sins. Yep. <laughs> I just want to get like, I want to like listen to an app of Kelsey reading the Bible with all of the extra stuff worked in. It would just be, that app would make millions better than you version. All right. So here we see this key. What is the key here in Christianity? So there's a lot to unpack here. Herein is love. John's talking about love. Again, don't think mushy love, cultural love, hallmark kind of love. This is real, biblical, godly-centered love. Which, by the way, verse 7, Beloved, that's us in Christ, let us love one another, for love is of God, and everyone that loves is born of God and knows God. So in our culture today, I know there's like this like because there's a big push for progressive cultural definition of love, a lot of Christians have pushed back against that. And instead of saying, let's redefine love for what it really is, we've just abandoned the idea of being loving. And we've run the opposite direction in a lot of places. And we don't want to talk about the love of God. And it's all just judgment, condemnation, judgment, condemnation. Listen, if the Bible says, if John says, we should love one another because love is of God. We can't denounce love and run away from love as Christians and run only to one side or the other. We also can't talk about love without talking about the consequences of sin, what that sin brought, the death of Christ. And so again, don't think I got to live in one extreme or the other. We can live in a balance of what love really is. So this love that John's talking about, go to verse 10. Herein is love. What does love really look like? Not that we loved God, but that he loved us. So God chose to love us, Romans 5, right? That he loved us and he demonstrated that love in that while we were yet still sinners, Christ died for us. So he showed us that love. Goes on to say this, and that love was manifested that he sent his son to be the propitiation or the payment, the ransom for our sins. That's Christianity. Not that God loves me because I loved him enough and I did enough and I was moral enough and I was good enough. It's not Christianity. It's no, God loves us. And sent his son for us. Now, as a response, what do we do? We receive Christ and what, what comes out of us? A love for Christ, a devotion to Christ. And by the way, a love one for another. Because if we are born of God, meaning new birth, John 3, we will love as Christ loves. And so again, so many in liberal Christianity, progressive Christianity say, you know what? You're just unloving. The church is just unloving. The church is just, you know, they're just so mean. We're going to get to some of the commandments down the road that speak to this. You're just so mean and out of touch and just, you need to be loving. Loving according to scripture does not mean blindly accepting every behavior that someone does as good. That is the most unloving thing you can do for another human being is just go, yeah, you're fine. We have to teach truth. So, yes, we should follow Jesus' moral example as it does matter how we live and how we treat others. However, those actions are not a merit unto some higher level of transcendent life. The only way we can live the, quote, abundant life from John 10 is to surrender to the shepherd who is the Christ, the son of the living God. We are saved by the work of Christ through the gospel, period. So live out the love that God has shown you by loving others, directing them to Christ. We are saved by the gospel. We preach the gospel, which is a gospel of grace and of love, but also of truth and consequence for sin. And so we have to understand that. So again, does Christianity work if Jesus is merely a moral example? No. We've already established it is not Christianity. 
Jesus is not a moral example more than an object of worship. He is, in fact, the object of our worship because he is the one who died for us. Hebrews, the whole point of Hebrews is that Jesus is better. Jesus is better than Moses, better than the law, better than the old covenant. Everything is better in Jesus. And so, yes, we worship him, but we also, as we worship him, as our Savior, now the life of Christ flows out of us in our works, which is the whole point of James as well. So any, any comments or thoughts adding to that? Yes. Yeah. 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 Yes. Yes. Yeah. No, that's a great point. Yeah. Yep. And that's, yep. I was going to say, yep. It's so frustrating because you're driven with love. Yep. 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 Right. Yeah. Well, and that the, the passage from Matthew where he says, you know, Lord, Lord, didn't we do all this in your name? Two things jump out to that. One, they're based in works, right? But also, apparently those works were fruitful. Like we cast out demons in your name. That means the demons went out. So that tells me there's power in the name of Christ. When his will is needed to be done, he will do what he's going to do, even through the mouth of a heathen, right? So again, the power of Christ, or the name of Christ is powerful enough to do the work of Christ. But again, they are more morally works-based. I'm a better person than you because I'm doing these things. And again, the wrath thing is interesting because so many people think Jesus came to save us from the God of the Old Testament. That Jesus set right all the wrong things that we thought about God from the Old Testament. That he was this mean, vindictive God. Man, I'm so thankful Jesus came along. Vodi Bakum says it this way, that Jesus came along to rescue us from that last administration. This is a more peaceful and gentle administration, you know. So again, just that whole different idea of even who Jesus was. Keith, I saw your hand. Fing, hand went up. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's just laying a groundwork, right? If I'm the standard, I'm the end-all, be-all, and I can kind of tell you what this means, then there's no authority beyond me. 
and feelings become more important, culture becomes more important, right? Whatever the popular opinion is becomes more important. But if Scripture is Scripture, we don't have the right to change Scripture. We merely have to look at what it actually says. And that's more than just denominational preferences. We talked about that last week. There are denominational differences of opinion on some passages, some church traditions. That's fine. Those people are still Christians, okay? But when you deny the very divinity of Christ, this is not a denominational preference anymore, We've crossed over from Christianity to something else altogether. Avi. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's not, a, it's not a God can't do problem, right? He can do anything. But yeah, absolutely. It just comes down to us knowing the word so that we can discern right from wrong, truth from error. And then in a loving way, in a loving, prayerful, gracious way, engaging those individuals in conversation. And then ultimately, no matter how the conversation ends, leave it in the Lord's hands. Because he can do the work that we can't do. And by the way, I believe he does the work even behind the scenes. When the person's saying, I reject this, I don't want to hear that. When the seed's been planted... I believe that the Spirit is working, and they can say whatever they want. But when they lay their head on their pillow at night, Spirit is working. And what they're doing with that is up to them, and God is so gracious. But we need to understand that as well. So any other comments, questions, or thoughts? I will add, one of the other reasons I wanted to teach on this is because we are so blessed, and we've been blessed for, it seems like, a lot longer than it really is, with uh, access to so many teachers speakers, leaders, uh, authors. You can jump on any number of social media things, YouTube, and find just countless hours of teachers and preachers and speakers. And I feel as though as much as that can be a great blessing, it's so cool that I can listen to a Billy Graham sermon from like 1960. That's so cool. But the danger in that is there's so much false teaching available. And if we aren't aware then we're just going to click on a button. That title sounds Christian. They threw a scripture verse on the screen. They quoted some Bible. It must be Christian. We can be so easily, even though we are saved, we're fully in Christ, we can be misled, right? That's why Paul spends so much time talking about in the early church, be aware of these kind of people and these kind of, because they'll lead you astray into this wrong thinking. So just, just that's why we're doing this, because I want you to be aware and discerning so you know when you click on that link, and you're listening to that person speak, don't just take it at face value. Like, listen through it. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And it doesn't mean you can't listen to people that disagree with you on certain points. But the major issues. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, yeah. So, hopefully this has been encouraging to you guys. Again, this is just one of ten. So, we got number two next week. And we'll break that apart. So, uh, Avi, buckle up. Hold on. She's, she's ready to go already. She's like, give it to me. I want number two. So, well, let's... Uh, She wouldn't have made it through two seconds. She's been throwing stuff at the screen. She'd be driving out to like Arizona, wherever he is. Like, I'm going to find him. <laughs> New Mexico. Yeah, wherever it is. I forget. But all right, well, let's do this, guys. We'll go ahead and pray. Uh, after we pray, the students have their snack night next door. So if you are not in the student ministry, uh, namely my son, another young one here, um, you guys obviously try not to be in the fellowship hall, but we'll let those guys get going on their snack night. So let's pray. And let you guys be dismissed to what's next. Father, we thank you, Lord, so much for your word. And Lord, I pray that we would be discerning. In 1 John 4, it's very clear that we needed to try and to test and to prove the things that we hear. Lord, so often we can be um, caught up in uh, a popular book, a popular speaker, um, so many that have gatherings and followers and we tend to think that those things somehow validate the message. No, those things aren't intrinsically bad or wrong. It's just we have to discern for ourselves the truth of your word. And Lord, what is this person saying? What are they really teaching? And Lord, help us to look into your word. Help us have conversations with others who know your word. Help us to study and learn not only what... Um, modern church thinks about that, but Lord, we can look into church history. We can see different examples of things and all of it coming together, Lord, obviously through prayer that we would understand clearer and deeper what your word really says. So Father, again, we thank you for the truth of your word. We thank you for the discerning um, spirit you give us in the Holy Spirit that we can know right from wrong. And Lord, I do pray for those that are caught up in this movement. Lord, it sounds so good. It teaches things that aren't Lord, on their surface, bad. We all should love our neighbor as ourselves. We should all be moral and be good and, and, and try to love those around us. And those things are fine. But Lord, those things are not a, a, a cover for our sin. Those things will not merit us favor with you. It is only through the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so help us to be discerning in these things, to know these things. And to just again, give you all the praise and all the glory for how you work in these conversations and in these moments. Father, again, we thank you for planning us in this church, in this county, at this time. This, you're calling us to be a generation that is committed and faithful to you, Lord, and may we be that as we share the gospel with those around us. Father, be with the student uh, snack night following service. Just give them a great time of fellowship and encourage them to have a good time. And Lord, again, thank you for these that are here and give us a great week ahead as we look forward for opportunities to praise you. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.